This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is Dr. J.B. Penn, Chief Economist for Deer & Company. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the crop insurance industry. NCIS provides the primary safety net for millions of acres of cropland and hundreds of commodities across the U.S., enabling farmers to supply our country with food and fiber year after year. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Dr. J.B. Penn after this. America's farmers and ranchers are relying on crop insurance now more than ever before to provide individualized protection and to secure operating loans. Protecting more than 290 million acres of farmland and more than 130 commodities across the U.S., crop insurance is the primary safety net for many farmers, enabling them to supply our country with food and fiber year after year. Crop insurance, providing peace of mind now and for the next generation of agriculture. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. This week our guest is Dr. J.B. Penn, Chief Economist for Deer & Company. What is called the golden era for U.S. agriculture appears to be coming to an end. Deer & Company's Dr. J.B. Penn says the shift in commodity prices and net farm income is likely a return to normal. The past few years have been abnormal. Uh, they've been abnormally good. It's been a, what some uh, have already started calling a golden era for uh, North American agriculture. I mean, we've seen record high commodity prices. We've seen increases in asset values in double digits year after year. Uh, we've seen record farm incomes, record exports. It's just been a, a very abnormal time. And I think most of us who've watched this industry over the years realize that that couldn't continue. I mean, there's not a lot that you can do profitably with $8 corn. And so we knew at some point we would have to come back to earth. And I think that's what we're doing now. We've still got very strong global demand for food, for grains and oilseeds, but the supply has caught up. We're in the midst of the third really favorable weather year. So we've had three global good weather years back-to-back, and so supply now has caught up with uh, the utilization, and the prices are beginning to reflect that, and consequently farm incomes are beginning to reflect that. Well, for those of us who remember the boom of the 70s and then the crash of the 80s, we always worry when we see the precipitous fall and commodity prices making the dive that they have. Is there a better floor and foundation under this ag economy than there was during that period of time? Yes, there is, and I think that's a really good way to put it. Uh, there, there is a much better foundation going in into this new era. The, the U.S. farm sector was very highly leveraged when we had the last big downturn, and that's not the case this time. Uh, farmers have done a really fantastic job in managing their debt uh, over the past several years, uh, and as I indicated, asset values have grown primarily uh, through the rise in uh, land prices, um, but farmers' debt uh, has, has, has not risen nearly as much. And so the balance sheet looks very good uh, now. And uh, all of the financial ratios that we watch still look very good. I mean, you're beginning to see a little bit of, uh, of a blip in, in overdue payments and, and some things like that, but, but uh, only on the margins and not very much. So, so the foundation is much better in, in terms still of cash flow, in terms of the balance sheet. Uh, going into this period. We have seen land values temper somewhat. 
some feared that there would be a bubble and it would burst and land. What do you see? I don't see a bubble, uh, and I think most of the other analysts who've looked at this uh, would agree. Farmers are not nearly as highly leveraged this time as they were in the past, and so they ran into big cash flow problems. There, there has been a, a, a tremendous increase in land prices, but it wasn't uh, heavily uh, financed. Uh, it was, it was largely equity purchases, and so you just don't, you just don't see the cash flow problems that that we saw in times past. What's your take on the overall U.S. economy? We continue to see some positive signs for the sector, and even as we speak, the Fed is still discussing and, and thinking about when that first interest rate may pick up. What do you see in terms of the economy? What are the bright spots, and what are your concerns? If I were using one word to describe the economy, the U.S. economy, I would, I would say persistent. Uh, you know, we're now in the 24th quarter, uh, since the the recession ended, uh, and that's that's like the seventh or eighth longest recovery uh, uh, in history, and uh, we've been expecting this economy to break out, and it hasn't done so, but it has persistently chugged along, and you know we have unemployment now down to 5.1 percent. Even though we've had some structural change in the labor force and not as many people are participating, but that's a number that most economists would call uh, full employment. Nonetheless, I think we're, we're not seeing any great wage pressure. There's certainly no price pressure. I mean, so inflation is not a problem. It's running well below the Fed's uh, target of, of 2%. So if the Fed raises interest rates at the September 17 meeting or thereafter, they're doing it to try to return the system to normal, uh, because I don't think uh, I don't think we're seeing wage or price inflation pressures uh, beginning just yet. So that tells me that we've not yet taken all of the slack out of this economy. We're not using all of the capacity yet. We could grow faster. We expect every year to be the breakout year for both the world economy and the U.S. economy, but we seem to hit bumps in the road. Now, out of that. 24 quarters where we've been showing positive GDP, six of those uh, are first quarters, of course. And if you look at the average growth rate for just those six quarters, uh, it has been uh, eight-tenths of a percent. And then if you look at at the remaining 18 quarters, the growth rate's 2.7 percent. So we've sort of gotten, uh, the economy has gotten into a pattern where we have a, a, a really dismal first quarter and then we begin to grow for the next three quarters, and then boom, we hit a, a poor first quarter. And I don't know whether that's a pattern that's going to persist or not. Uh, a lot of it is always attributed to weather, but we'll see. Nonetheless, I, I think the U.S. economy is in pretty good shape uh, right at the moment. And, uh, you know, the prospects, most of the forecasters expect growth to, to get better. What are your thoughts on the value of the domestic ethanol industry to corn? How much is riding on the EPA's decision on the volume output as a part of the renewable fuel standard? Well, I think the use of corn for ethanol is an important market for the corn industry. It's It's been a big boost, I think, for U.S. agriculture in general over the past several years. But as you know, I, I think we've reached the blend limit now. And we're blending about 10% of the total gasoline supply uh, with ethanol. 
And that's pretty close to where the EPA is likely to set the final mandate here. So we've had a period of very strong growth as we ramped up to uh, 13 and a half or 14 billion gallons of ethanol being blended into the fuel supply. And my sense is that that, that growth is, is over now, and we're likely to stay at about the same level, blending about 10%, even given current oil and gasoline prices for the foreseeable future. I don't see that going away because it makes economic sense to the industry to blend. My sense is that we're going to see this industry sustained at about the same level for the foreseeable future unless we get some new breakthroughs in technology or the infrastructure to allow uh, different blends uh, comes on the scene pretty quickly. Well, I'll follow the question uh, or the line of questioning and the demand for corn. Uh, we've seen a big increase in demand for corn over the past few years. We've also seen a livestock sector that is still the corn foundation of the demand for corn and for feed grains. Do you see the livestock recovery in the U.S., and can this be sustained, or how long does it take for livestock to recover from some of the tough droughts that we've had in the western part of the country and, and the economics and others that have struck against both the swine and the poultry industry? You know, you talk about the livestock industry, I think you have to talk about each component separately because they sometimes tend to go in different cycles. In terms of beef cattle and corn consumption by the the fed cattle industry, you know, I think most people have expected to see the, the beef industry turn up for several years, and it hasn't done so. Now I think it is. I think we're beginning to see the, the cattle herd uh, rebuilt. So I think as, as that happens uh, and as we get more animals and we move more animals into the into the feedlot. I think that bodes well for corn. The avian influenza, you know, was a, a detriment, uh, no doubt, and I think everybody's pretty apprehensive in the poultry sector as to what uh, the fall will bring, whether we see new outbreaks of, of, uh, uh, of bird flu or not. And, and then you look at dairy, you know, we've seen a pretty cyclical move in, in the dairy industry and, and the same in, in the hog industry. And as you note, feed is still the, the biggest single user of, of corn. And uh, as, as those sectors uh, begin to do better, increase numbers, then that bodes well for feed utilization. When I think about exports, obviously we have a lot of business with Canada and with Mexico. But most of the attention lately has been drawn to China from their currency to the Shanghai index, a lot of concern about the second largest economy in the globe. What's your take on the shakeup that we've seen in China, and is there a bottom anywhere near? I think the key question today, given all of the things that you've just mentioned going on in China, the the key question today is can the Chinese authorities manage a slowing economy as well as they appeared to have managed uh, a growing economy? Uh, everybody was beginning to think they had some superpowers because, uh, you know, they have managed that economy for more than 30 years now and, and have grown it to the size that you indicated. So everybody thought the Chinese authorities could, could really do great managing the economy, but they seem to have stumbled recently, and some of the actions that they've taken appear to be counterproductive. And so I think people are beginning to wonder about uh, their competency. Can, can they really manage this economy as growth comes down from well over 10% for a long time to single-digit rates? And, and that's the key question. We've known a lot of the things that people are now talking about in terms of China. We know about overcapacity in the manufacturing sector. We know about all of these phantom 
towns, phantom cities, big housing complex with no people in them. We've, we've known all of those things. We've known about the shadow banking system. But it seems that when things begin to turn down, everybody resurrects all of the things that you already know, and it seems like everything is bad there. My sense is that, you know, we just have to wait and see. But I, I have a lot of confidence myself that the Chinese authorities can manage this. They have huge reserves. They have a lot of levers that they can pull, uh, and they can be very decisive. They aren't hamstrung by having a constantly quarreling Congress. When they decide to, to make a, a move on economic policy, they can do so. My own sense is that, that they'll probably uh, weather this storm uh, and, and things will will settle down before long. Even so, having China grow at 6 or 7% a year is not the same as having China grow at 10%, but it's now a very mature, very large economy, so I don't think anyone can reasonably expect double-digit growth rates in an economy that size. I mean, look at how we struggle to get 3 3.5% growth. Uh, I, I think they're still uh, still in an enviable position. Well, thinking of the Chinese, they owe a lot of our debt. How much of the relationship does the Chinese economy have on the U.S. economy, or in particular, uh, U.S. agriculture? There, there are two parts to that question. One is just the, the general economic relationship. Nobody uses the word globalization anymore, but we are all very, very interconnected. And the U.S. and the European Union sort of go back and forth as China's number one market. Some years it's the U.S., some years it's the EU. So we're, we're very connected to the Chinese, and the Europeans are very connected to the Chinese. So what happens in China is certainly going to have an impact on both the European Union and on the U.S., and also all of those economies uh, in Asia that uh, have very uh, more direct linkages with China, in, including Japan. Now, as to the agricultural relationship, I mean, the Chinese are, are not a market economy. They uh, are still planning, and uh, they still decide which commodities and, and, and in what quantities they're going to import. Uh, you know, they seem to have taken some decisions saying, in the case of soybeans, we're not going to try to be self-sufficient. We're going to import the, the oil seeds that we need. And now there is some question about, you know, are they changing their mind relative to corn? They are pretty clearly uh, changing their domestic agricultural policy. Uh, it's structured very similar to the kinds of policies that the U.S. and the EU had in the 1970s with sort of minimum support prices. But they seem to be moving away from that now. And, and you know, how will that affect their mix of crops? How will that affect uh, what gets grown and where? And then, you know, will they turn to the international market for that? You know, because their internal price for corn has been so high, they've imported more grain sorghum, uh, more DDGs now. And so we're seeing some shifts there. But my sense is that food is paramount to political stability, adequate food, ample food. And uh, the Chinese are not going to make any mistakes uh, uh, with, uh, with the food supply. So I think they'll, they'll continue to be big players in, in the import market. Are there particular regions of the globe that are showing areas of growth that might provide greater opportunity for U.S. agriculture or areas that are in downturn that could have an effect on us? Well, part of this boom of the past few years that we talked about, a big part of it was certainly fueled by global GDP growth. 
and most of the boom for agriculture came from growth in the emerging market and developing countries. And, you know, we heard a lot about the BRICS, and we've heard a lot about the Asian tigers. And so it was growth in all of those areas, uh, uh, incomes growth, uh, job creation, people uh, moving to higher economic stations in life, moving into the so-called middle class, uh, changing their diets, eating more calories, eating better food. All of those things drove the boom. And so it, it's growth, uh, especially in the uh, emerging market in developing countries that will, that will bode well for uh, a food surplus producer like uh, the U.S., like North America. So, uh, so that's, that's what we want to see is a continuation of this growth and demand for grains, oil, seeds, meats, all livestock products. I'm going to bring our conversation to a conclusion. You suggested that we are returning to a normal in terms of commodity prices and here in the U.S. I think farmers are hopeful that some of the input prices uh, that they are still paying uh, for might uh, show some, some adjustment as we look into the 2016 crop year. Uh, but if we're moving back toward normal, I'll just ask you, what does normal look like from the crop farmer and for the livestock farmer in U.S. agriculture? Well, it doesn't look like it did before the boom, and and that's what people sometimes mistake when when you say we're we're coming down from the record highs to some kind of new normal. Uh, people think, well, that means two dollar corn as far as the eye can see. That's not the case. Uh, over this uh, last ten years or so, uh, the the cost structure has changed as well. I mean, we know what's happened to to fertilizer prices and, and seed prices and fuel prices and even machinery prices have gone up. So, you know, a farmer's cost structure has changed. And so I don't know, I'm, I'm not going to get into the debate about, you know, what's the break-even price for corn or the break-even price for soybeans, but I can tell you it, it's not $5 soybeans and it's, it's, it's not $2 corn. It's, it's something well above that. But that's what the market is sort of looking for now. And I think, I think we're seeing, uh, uh, prices that, uh, that, that sort of reflect, uh, kind of, uh, the new balance between supply and demand. So now that means weather is the key determinant. If you have, uh, adverse weather anywhere in the world, you short the supply just a little bit, prices begin to move higher almost immediately. Well, J.B. Penn, we have tremendous respect for you and for your work and your service to agriculture. I want to thank you for taking time and spending with us here on Open Mic. The program is called Open Mic, and the audience is yours, sir. Well, thanks, Jeff. I really appreciate uh, being invited to be on the program. It's, uh, it's a very interesting time in the world. I mean, there is so much turmoil. There are so many economic events uh, that uh, it uh, is just very interesting to try to observe it all, analyze it a bit, try to make some sense out of it, and then try to guide people uh, in the, the most opportune path as we look to the future. Thanks for having me. Our thanks to Dr. J.B. Penn, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the crop insurance industry. NCIS provides the primary safety net for millions of acres of cropland and hundreds of commodities across the U.S., enabling farmers to supply our country with food and fiber year after year. 
for AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Nally.